Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the MRI 97 podcast. This is episode 11. I, as always, am Alan, the pole with the goal, joined by one of my co-hosts, DJ. Anna. Yes, and if you couldn't tell because of the fact that I'm doing the intro, Matt is not here. Uh, he's still um, on his way back from Nashville. He was over at that game. Um, and DJ, do you have anything to say about that? Uh, from what I understand, he's currently being held up by seven Wendigos and two Bigfeet, trying to talk to him about his car, him and car, bleh, his and Array's car's extended warranty. We wish him the best and may Kesslock Waddle have mercy upon his soul. Indeed. So instead, we're joined here by uh, someone who's already been on the podcast, and that is Monsieur Tim. Hey guys, good to be back. Yay, he's back, and we're going to have so much fun. There's going to be ponies and balloons, and actually, there's going to be none of that. Are we talking about Matt's bachelorette party, or are we talking about the podcast? Oh, uh... I don't know if he's going to want us to talk about that just yet. So we'll leave that for later. You go to Nashville without it being your bachelorette party. Do do they like check like at like at the border? Like you have to like show a visa that you're getting married or or something (laughs) like that. Your bachelorette. I've never been. I've never been to Tennessee, so I don't know how that (laughs) works. Um, I don't know what the border situation there is. But um, how are y'all? How are y'all holding up? Especially after what happened yesterday. Um. Tim, how have you been? Well, I, I can say that that was a game that was um, 90 minutes plus some stoppage time. That was. That's that's how long the game usually goes. Uh, how about how about you, DJ? At least at the beginning of the plot, if you've done something nice to say, don't <laughs> say anything at all. So I, I came up with something nice. <laughs> yes, I guess, uh, yeah. I, I didn't get to watch the game last night. I tried watching Oof. it today. It was just so, so boring. Like, I knew exactly what was going to happen. It's like every pass looked like it sucked. So, yeah. Uh, I don't blame you. But, I mean, before we get into those details, which 100% we will get into a lot of, we have a lot of news to go over from earlier this week. Uh, The first off is surrounding uh, Brian Gutierrez and Chris Brady and the situation around the U-20 World Cup and the United States Youth National Team. Uh, In a press conference earlier in the week, Ezra confirmed that the club will not release Brian Gutierrez and Chris Brady to the United States Youth National Team and their U-20 World Cup campaign. Um, Ezra in the press conference said, We discussed it at length as a staff with the front office, and we feel that because these players are such an integral part of the team, two regular starters, having them gone for a long time will be detrimental to what we're trying to do here as a club. And reaching our goals, such as making the playoffs, we understand the situation. The players want to represent their country, but it's something that we discussed, and we decided that for the club's sake, it's best that they stay home with us, Ezra. So, this has been a topic that has been fairly polarizing from what I've seen uh, between the Fire Faithful. And for the most part in the MLS community, I've seen... A lot of people siding with Guti and Brian and against the club's decision that they didn't like the fact that the club isn't releasing them. If I'm if I'm Guti and I'm and I'm hearing that, obviously they had discussions before the public statement. But um you're reading, you know, or you're hearing like exactly what the coach said, because of course you kind of care about what's being said in public. Um, you know, you'd think like like cartoon dog Guti, like the ears would perk up when it was like, wait regular starter like is that 
that's me going forward? Like, are we are we doing that? Um, because I think that that is a big difference in, in some ways. Um, you know, I, I do have really mixed feelings about it. Like, I know that like a lot of fire fans have compared what Ezra said to what Jim Curtin said, where you know he talked about the importance kind of uh, of MLS in being a a source of USMNT players and the importance of the individual players themselves about it being like a once in a lifetime opportunity. But, you know, I think when you look at it from a sporting perspective, I'm not sure at a certain level how much, if you're a regular starter in MLS playing against teams like, you know, like Atlanta, which has, you know, four full national team um, starters in its regular starting 11. Um, I don't know how much playing against a bunch of like 19 year olds, some of whom are on reserve teams and not getting any regular minutes whatsoever really does for helping advance your ability to play versus that. I mean, that's, that's separate from like the national pride thing, which I think is important and giving people an opportunity. And especially I think for Goody, it gives him a platform because we're not at a place right now where, I mean, it's just, it's a bigger stage than, you know, Chicago versus Nashville on a, a night in the first weekend of May. Like, there's not as many scouts that are going to be watching that game as they're going to be watching the U20 World Cup. On one hand, I understand why people are trying to say, well, Brady and Guti should be allowed to go. Like, you want them getting experience. You want them getting national team experience. Maybe they get they perform outstanding and get scouted or something like that. But on the other side, the fire is still technically in the playoff lines. And however that may be going right now, which we'll talk about that later, there's still that chance. And they'll miss probably, if I'm reading right, more than likely they would miss the game against Charlotte at the very least until the game against Toronto. So that's four games, three of which are away. And you want your starting players to be there all the time because if they're not there, then you may as well start throwing games away. And they are the two. In my opinion, Brady and Guti are the top three players in the team. The only one that's also there right now, at least, is Toronto. You can't really justify getting rid of them. And even if they were to go, then you have the problem of Shaq and you have the problem of well, now the formation's got to change again because we have fifty people. We have three people trying to get into one spot. Then what happens if uh, Richie gets injured or if Gall gets injured? We don't have a fourth keeper other than Miskovic, and Miskovic isn't—he's not that great. I think going down to like thinking about like a third or fourth keeper is like a little in the weed. You know, what I mean, like that could potentially happen, sure. But I mean, I don't think that's that's really the primary concern. Gall is injured right now, though. That's the one thing. But yeah, like I understand entirely why people want them to go. But coming from Jim Curtin, it's sh- like you're comparing Philadelphia and Chicago. Philadelphia is producing young talent just all the time. They're now turning to Dallas. They're turning to New York. Chicago doesn't do that. We have literally, what, three academy players currently that are in the game day 18 every time in Pineda, Guti, and Brady. And other than that, it's like you'll see Casas once in a while, and that's it. So I understand where people are coming from, but the other side of it, though, is that, you know, players do have a choice 
whether or not they stick around with an academy, whether or not they sign a professional contract after being in an academy. And, you know, in general, I'm kind of on the side that like not releasing them is okay. But I mean, to me, there, there is an element of that kind of gives you pause of saying like, look, if I get this opportunity, am I going to be in a place that will let me go and take advantage of it? And, you know, I, I think that on that, it's, it, it comes down to like, are they both starters? Cause it's clear that Brady is, it's clear that Brady, if Brady is fit to go, he's going to go, he's going to go 90 minutes. I don't think that he really gains that much by playing in the U20 World Cup from a career perspective, from an exposure perspective versus just being a starter, you know, 90 minutes every match week in, week out in MLS. Like, I think that's a pretty good platform for him at this point. But the, the question is Goody. And like you were saying, Tim, um, you know, it's always great to go and represent your country. You know, that's something that these players, you know, aspire to do, you know, not just play at a professional level, but also play at, play at a level where they're able to, you know, wear those colors specifically where you're from, you know, on your chest and everything. But in this case, like you said, the quality that they'd be playing against isn't the same, even if it's against other MLS teams that have like actual national, you know, senior national team players. And if we were to release them, you know, would they even be getting start? Would they even be getting minutes? Guti, not really sure. Uh, Brady, most likely, he would definitely get some minutes in there. He's definitely one of the best youth goalkeepers we have. Though, I I do want to say this situation, especially for Guti, would be a lot less difficult if the other players that played in his current position we're doing their job essentially. Yeah. And it goes both ways though, right? Like is, is what Ezra did a commitment to Goody that he is the starter if he is the best performer? Cause I think that it really has to be, I, I think that any other read on the situation is unfair. Like to me, that's, it's a commitment on both sides and that's what it comes down to. Yeah. He said, and, and he said, you know, these are uh, players that are such an integral part of our team to regular starters you know, Guti is a starter. So, but regular starters, my question is, is that him saying that going backwards because Shakiri was hurt? Or is that saying going forwards? Because he said a lot of things about Shakiri, how, you know, you have to respect his, basically his resume, um, which is looking back, not looking forward, right? And, and mm-hmm. Guti can't affect Shakiri's resume. Like, he, he, he can't go back and rewrite history. All he can do is control how he plays. And is he doing enough to become the default starter if he's the best player? And I think that that's the commitment that, that Ezra and the fire coaching staff in general, the front office owes to him by keeping him back. What happens happens in terms of how well the U S youth national team performs at the U 20 and, you know, what ends up happening with Guti and Chris, as they continue the campaign here, this is going to be, you know, uh, a, a matter this that's polarizing for either way. Whether you're on team, they should stay. Whether you're on team, they need they should go. You know, it's a very interesting topic and very interesting, honestly, situation that we are uh, as a team. That you know, we have young players that normally you'd be like, okay, you could send them to youth national team, but they're such an integral part of the team. I'm not sure if we there's really any other team that isn't that similar situation 
and in a way, like we can take that as a positive, though, right? Like mm-hmm. we have guys that were developed locally. That, I mean, Guti this season has gotten recognized as being a bright young talent, and the the read on him from a lot of the comments around like people that follow the league is that he should be getting like full men's national team looks at this point. And so, you know, again, like it is a judgment call. Like to me, like I really wish they could go emotionally because just that once in a lifetime opportunity, like you're never going to get another chance to play at like a, a youth world cup where specifically like, you know, teams like Argentina can maybe not have the best couple of years and then they're beatable in a way that they're not in a full, you know, senior World Cup. And so you can have some great memories. I mean, you know, Pano was able to have, what was it, like nine months that he was in charge of the Serbian youth team and won a World Cup with him. He was able to parlay that into a career where he's been failing up for the better part of a decade now. So, like, these things can happen, you know? I will add on, regardless there has been so much overreaction to on social media because I've seen at least like three people at like heights and Ezra are devils for this. And it's like, this is not an easy decision. This is not, it's not a case of, well, we'd let them go or else nothing happens. It's like, this is not an easy decision for anyone involved. There is no good choice here because no matter what happens, everybody fails at some point at one thing that we need. Yeah, like, it's not exactly this year because just the years don't quite line up. But, like, I think that if, like, the Olympics were happening this this summer, I don't think Atlanta releases Diego Almada. Like, I just don't see that happening because he's too good. He's too much of a part of that team. And I don't think that the Olympics really help him in any way. Like, I'm sure he would love to be there. He would love to get a chance to compete for a trophy with, with the Argentinian, I mean, basically U23s and a couple of senior guys. But, like... He is just too valuable as a senior player. And if that seems okay to you, then I feel like the situation with the fire has to seem okay, except for the fact that, like, you know, I feel like we are worried about if if people that we care about are being treated right. Essentially. And like I was saying earlier about, you know, personally, I don't think we wouldn't be having this issue if one person some Swiss guy was performing at a level where we'd be like, okay, they're doing good enough that we can let at least like Guti go because they're doing decently enough. But prior, you know, in that press conference, you know, prior to that game against, um, when we played against the Red Bulls, Shakiri only featured for 17 minutes, having three total passes, zero of them being completed. So it's like, we have theoretically have someone to go into Guti's space, but we have basically lost trust in him. And like DJ mentioned, these are top two out of the three guys we have right now. And that third, Carlos Taran, he's essentially day-to-day, still questionable after picking up a knock against Red Bulls. He didn't feature at all against Nashville. And, you know, even Wyatt has had some hamstring issues and he was featured over him against Red Bulls, uh, and then it was the other way around where Amsberg was featured uh, against Nashville. So, you know, on top of performance issues from other players and injuries, you know, I don't disagree with the fact that we're not letting them go because it's like, yeah, cool. World Cup, you know, representing your country, that's pretty cool, but it's... it's. But, but there is a promise on the other side, though, right? Like, the promise has to be 
if you are the best person on the field, you are going to be the guy that gets to be on the field as a starter or for as many minutes as we can. You know, sometimes you do have to take players out because you're managing minutes when you've got multiple competitions and, and all that. And you never like it if you're a player, but it's the reality. But you have to give them every chance at every minute that you think you can use them for. I will say if the Gold Cup comes around and Guti gets called up and they try and get him, then you're talking a different story. But right now, yeah, no, that's it's unfortunate, but it's understandable. Yep. Of course, by the time the Gold Cup comes around, who knows what the fire will look like? Well, I mean, that's the other thing with the with the league, though, is that like you, you can have teams that are really nowhere, like they're they're up a creek without a paddle at that point in the season, and then they string together, you know, three or four or five good results, and they're suddenly back in the thick. I mean, that's what happened to the Flyer last year, right? Like, we, we went three months without a win, and then all of a sudden we had, like, a good couple of weeks, and we were back in it, and then, you know, That's all back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or apparently what Kansas City wants to do now that they beat the first team in the West. Randomly. It, it's MLS. It's... <laughs> this is MLS. Uh, yeah, I, I truly, yeah, this is MLS, uh, <laughs> insert that Hans Zimmer, um, was it, is it Hans Zimmer that made that? He, I think he made like the new league anthem a few, few seasons back, which I really like listening to. So, uh, recently moving away from the topic of Guti and Brady, there was an article released, um, or by Spartico listing the top 50 most valuable soccer clubs in the world. 18 of those 50 are MLS teams, and one of them is the Fire. The Chicago Fire rank 47th in the world for most valuable soccer club. That's, I think, a, a bit of a, like, a okay. That's... I mean, so you, you pay for valuations going forward, right? Like, you, if, mm-hmm. if a company made a lot of money in the past and isn't making any money now and you don't think will ever make money again, it's a worthless company. And that's what these valuations are. It, it's a bet that in the future, soccer will be as important in this country as the other major sports and that the values will be treated as such. Because, like, I mean... New York is a city that's multiple times larger than London in terms of population. And it has two MLS clubs. How many EPL clubs, not to mention just like clubs that are sort of like, you know, potentially championship, like League One that are like having people show up on Saturdays too, are in the London area, you know. But if you can get 50% ish, like you can get one of two clubs in New York. I mean, and you think that soccer will eventually be important. It's worth a lot of money. Yeah, and in the article, they talked about, uh, they showed the chart with the, you know, the 50 most uh, valuable clubs, and they measured it on revenue as well of, as well as value. And granted, the fire are pretty much near the back, but I think the fact that we're in that 50, I think is a bit of a, is a bit of a, I think eye-opening. So kind of like, okay, we're, we're considered valuable Yet there there hasn't really been too much value to be seen on the pitch, really, especially in these last few years. I, I think it's I think it's something just interesting for me at least. So yeah, 
I mean, Joe Mansuito certainly has paid a lot of money for the club. I mean, somewhere around or north of the 400 million mark, um, you know, paying $60 million for the club to not play in Bridgeview, like spending that much money. Like, it's almost the same amount of money for the club having played at SeatGeek versus not playing, right? So he certainly is is spending money on on a lot of things, I mean, including players, including the squad, even if the results haven't been there. But I mean, I think that valuation is basically like if you're going to be the only top, like top division team in the Chicago area with this city's and this area's like population as demographics and everything else, like that's worth something. Um, and I think that's where that valuation really comes from. Um, but that I mean, that highlights the potential, right? Like there really isn't a reason that Soldier Field could not be filled with people every Saturday during the MLS season when there's a game because, because of the potential of this club. I kind of get a feeling part of the reason why the fire in the top 50 is partially because of Shaq, because they're saying Shaq is worth so much, but that's just my bland thing. I haven't actually read the article, so I'm not going to say like, oh yeah, that's why, but I mean, it, it makes sense that the fire would be a, a little more worth a little bit more just because U.S. high money and, I mean, stuff like that. Unless all of a sudden uh, the fire buys Soldier Field, then it'll go up a lot more, hopefully. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen because I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, where the location where Soldier Field is and the park district around it is a part of what is called, I think, like the Burnham Agreement or something like that. Basically, that the la- the lakefront uh, the land that's in front of the lake is to be owned by no one. It's not supposed to be owned privately. It's supposed to be sort of public, essentially. And that's and that's why we don't have a George Lucas Museum here. That is true. Oh, that's I. Mm, I'm still. Mm, yeah, I'm not about did not that. Mean to, sorry, did not mean to. And speaking of, um, so rubbing salt in the wound is what I just did. But in terms of like a grain of salt, um, when you look at the listing on that Sportico article. Mm-hmm. What what do you think the most valuable club in Manchester is? Manchester United. That's what they listed, yeah. Um, they listed Manchester United being a about a six billion dollar club, and I think Manchester City being just about like four point like two, four point three or something like that. Which is interesting since Manchester City's the probably more of the successful two in the recent years. And like you said, you know, in terms of maybe we're more valued because we have like Shakiri. You know, you'd think City would also be higher valued because they have probably the best up and coming playing player that is Erling Holland right now. And and just like the the mindset around the world. Like when I was a kid, I was living, you know, overseas most of the time. And like I, I swear the the two things that every kid had, like every kid that could afford it, like they had a Chicago Bulls jersey and they had a Manchester United jersey. Like those were the two things. Because it was a global, like Manchester United was a global brand. Like even if you, you know, you had to get the games on like a, you didn't even have to watch the games. It was about the, the perception of what the club meant. Um, and I, but I think that that's sort of faded a lot. And Old Trafford now is looking old and actually rusting. Um, like you can just Google Old Trafford rust and you you can see some you know pretty gruesome pictures of it. Um, so I mean I don't know if. Man, you was really worth fifty percent more than than Man City at this point, just given the investments in the two clubs, 
the facilities that are associated with them, you know, where the clubs are going. And it's 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 very interesting to see, you know, because uh, in the article, it once again, it lists like how there's out of the 50, 18 of them are MLS uh, sides with a total value of 11.8 billion. And there only being nine English Premier League, but that value is all the way like 27.2. So it, it's very interesting. Um, same thing, you could go between Serie A and La Liga. There's seven Serie A teams with a value of 6.6 .6 billion and only four La Liga teams with a value almost double of that. So, yeah. And, and again, like value a lot of it. Like if you're buying a club, like you're not just buying what you have today, you're buying a promise on like future revenues, future profits, and stuff like that. Like, Soccer is not going to get bigger in England. It's not going to get bigger in Italy. It's not going to get bigger in Spain or, you know, Germany. Like, so it, it could get bigger in the U.S. And I think that's what's really driving those valuations on those clubs. It's a promise that in the future, you could own something a lot more valuable. And that is worth something today. Yeah. And you can take that same kind of thinking with the top five leagues in Europe. And you can apply it to the, to the five leagues here in the United States with the NHL, MLB, NFL, and the NBA, you know, those are, for the most part, already established leagues here. You know, there's like a, maybe a, f a few maybe expansion teams that come out once in a while. Um, I think the NHL was thinking about once again coming back to Atlanta. But for the most part, you know, those leagues are set while MLS is still growing. And they also have a chart here of value to revenue multiples for different sports. And while MLS, even though the average value and the average revenue is fairly lower than the other four leagues, the value to revenue multiple is the highest. MLS has a lot more room to grow in comparison to the other leagues where they've already topped out. And in some of them, kind of in some of them, in my opinion, like the NHL and the MLB, they're starting to shrink a bit. And there's not as much interest in those leagues, in, which can be reflected in like attendance as well as just overall interest in those leagues. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, I think it does speak to like what the potential is to really grow the sport where like, you know, everyone, I think in the United States now, for the most part, like they know what soccer is. Like there there were stories of like U.S. men's national team players like being on a commercial flight going to a game because that's what we had to do back then um, in the 90s. And, you know, they would say, well, what do you do for a living? And the player would say, I'm a soccer player. And they're like, no, 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 sure. Like, th that's, that's great. But like, what is it? At, like, what do you do to get paid? And like, they couldn't believe that someone would get paid to play soccer in the United States. Like, that's what you did as a kid. Yeah. Um, and And no one says that anymore. You know, and I think that that's that's one of the important things about the, the growth of the sport, the growth of the league. Like, it isn't crazy to anyone that you can be a professional in this. And it isn't crazy to any kid growing up to think I could do this for a living. Yeah. And, you know, the growth, like like you mentioned, like way back then when soccer wasn't very much regarded as like a sport where you could get paid. My dad and my parents came to the U.S. They came to Chicago in 98 um, so fairly around the time when the World Cup was happening here in the States for the first time and like when MLS was actually being established. And they said they remember when U.S. media 
would not only like forget, but they would make fun of the World Cup and they'd be like, oh, soccer, they're just kicking a ball back and forth. And they would cover almost nothing about the World Cup happening in the United States. That's a completely different story now. You know, it's different where, you know, especially in this last World Cup where, you know, not only was the U.S. men's national team actually playing and they qualified, but overall there was a lot more people that, you know, even though they, I even I knew a lot of people um, that say that I don't like soccer, I don't care much for soccer. They tuned in for the World Cup. And the concerts were fired to, to capture that and to be a part of that because, you know, Don Garber had an interview recently where they talked about an initiative to kind of like reinvigorate some of the sort of like older, like MLS 1.0 clubs, I guess the fire mm-hmm. technically like MLS 1.1, like maybe 1.05 or something, some, a patch, um, or like a, a day, a, a day seven patch on this. Um, but you know, I think there clearly is the potential there for it to be huge in, in the city. It's just, you have to get the right reasons for people to show up. Exactly. Exactly. And I know, um, DJ can attest to this, how, when we <clears throat> talked with, uh, Eli Lesser this week in MLS, if you haven't listened to that special, go listen to it. I talked about how a lot of the original clubs or like original expansion clubs like us at the fire or DC or New York, have been essentially put to the back burners with MLS focusing a lot on um, the newer clubs. You know, right now, of course, St. Louis is the big next big thing, but they're still talking, of course, a lot about current champions, LAFC, Austin still in the mix there as well. So, so hopefully, um, you know, we can get not just us as a fire, because of course this is our team, but also a lot of the other original MLS teams, especially those like DC that have been put on the back burner to be back in the light, back in the relevance somewhat. All right, gentlemen, I think the time has now come to talk about what, in my opinion, has to be not the best game, you could even say the worst from the fire this season. As the title suggests, this was a completely out of tune performance from the fire in the Music City. Um, final score was 3 0 to um, Nashville. I think most of us at MRI knew that this wasn't going to be our game. I know DJ, you suggested last week that, you know, we always have a game in the South that goes South and. Kind of was it. Um, I can't remember what your final score prediction was, but I'm pretty sure for the most part, everyone had somewhere around like three. Mine was three to one with uh, Miguel Navarro scoring a goal. Oh, yeah. And I think I remember Matt saying that he would, that he would like sell the account and everything if that happened. He hated, he basically straight up said, that is officially the worst prediction I've ever heard. And if that happens, well, goddamn. Well, to be fair, Matt's prediction was two nothing for the fire. So, yeah, uh, your prediction was closer than his. I I sent bad juju with him. Apparently, I can't remember what my prediction was. I think it was like two one for Nashville. I said it could go. Either, I was going to go close either way because I, yeah, you know, I had hope, but that hope was very quickly dismantled. So I'm I'm just going to say like glass half full, right? 
Now it turns out it's it's half full of like malort combined with like lemon juice or or something that would be sour and disgusting. But glass half full. This is the first time this year that the Flyer have actually been outplayed throughout a game. We're ten games in, and there are games they lost, but I don't think that there were games that they did not play at least to win. And the the story up to this point was that. There were games they played to win. They deserved to win. They played the majority of the games ahead, and they were not able to finish out. This was different. This time they were outplayed. That's not great, but this is the first time that's happened this year. Yes, and I found it very interesting, especially I think near the middle of the second half, the commentators mentioned how usually Nashville is the team that plays fairly less in terms of a possessive game, that they're out of the entire league, I think, one of they're like the third at the bottom for it in terms of most possession. You know, usually the fire is a very possessive team, someone that controls the ball, especially in the bag in the midfield, and then quickly moves into the final third, where that final third product is usually the the main problem with the fire. This was a especially in the first half, one where the fire saw very little to almost nothing of of the ball. So yeah, I mean, I think that part of that. Like Nashville, their whole MO is they want to get up by a goal and then just kill you with counters. They they will bomb the ball down the field all day, trust their guy to be fast enough to win it back, and occasionally score, but occasionally enough where that puts the match away. Like that's that's their game plan. And that's essentially what happened in the second and the third goal. But the the point is before that, we were not up to the level where we were even giving them enough for them to want to try to do that, which I, I don't think is great. I do really have a question about the lineup and whether or not this was Ezra trying to give us a rotated lineup in light of the fact that we have two matches coming up this week. Um, you know, especially some of the choices. Like, I, I don't see how you justify, you know, Casper Shabilko starting um, just given how the play has been uh, from him lately. I mean, you know, no disrespect to him, but it's just some of the things that he does. And I do think that he has like good attributes to his game, but I, you know, him, I don't believe that he really is one of the top two strikers on the team. And so for him to start makes you wonder, is this a rotated lineup amongst a lot of other players that were, you know, missing or not in the 11 or the 18. Yeah, there were, I mean, eight changes from what I remember correctly. This was, uh, another new Ezra Hendrickson lineup of a 3-4-1-2. Of a, a lot of people saying he's prioritizing the upcoming Open Cup and MLS games next week against St. Louis. And um, I guess it, it the first 10 minutes were incredibly shaky. The first, the, the fire had absolutely nothing for them. And I thought we were going to concede fairly early on. After that, I think think they started taking a bit more possession of the ball. I think they had a few chances going forward. And then around that 10th minute, and then finally in the 20th, another first half injury substitution, this time being our captain, Rafael Chijos, coming off in the 20th minute for Marine Halasalasi. And... this, I, I remember jokingly saying the next person on the hot seat is going to be the athletic trainer. But genuinely, it's frustrating that it seems that in almost every single game, 
we can't go an entire first half without someone getting subbed off for injury, whether it's for a knock or whether it's for something more serious. It's genuinely frustrating. And it's like, you know, is the athletic trainer actually to blame, to blame the person that's, you know, taking care of player conditioning? Is this a Mount Bridgeview problem? You know, can those new facilities that are being built, can they build, be built even quicker? So it, it's it, that's something that's driving me personally insane, how we can't go a first half without a key player getting injured. You know, we already were going into the game without Carlos Teran, with Wyatt, and Wyatt, I love you, but Wyatt's form hasn't returned since, you know, the form that he had in the beginning of last season, and already we're losing our captain. And I remember the commentator saying, uh, that the removal of Chihos has already removed that, you know, layer of communication and that there's been a lot of mix-ups and lack of communication between the players. So, frustrating. Yeah, I commiserate with that. Uh, DJ, I, I mean, uh, how did you feel when Chihos um, was down on the, on the pitch and not getting up? Honestly, because I... The only thing I heard last night, because I was working and... I just saw somebody say Shios is down, and my first thought was, "Oh, so that's how this game's going to go." Because the second Shios goes down, you're like, "Okay, well, then somebody's gonna be." It, it, it's done. Like the, it's gotten to the point now where you're kind of expecting at least one guy to go down. Well, their first, second, somebody's gonna go down. Somebody's gonna be injured, and of course, it's somebody that you can replace. It's gonna be one of your best players. It's either Fede or it's Tehran or it's Shihos or it's Mueller or it's Kamara or it's. But like, yeah, so I don't know what's going on with the with the athletic trainer. I don't know what's going on with all of that. I don't think it's the trainer, to be honest. I mean, my read on it really is if you're trying to do too much, you will do too much and you will risk getting injuries. And I think that this is one of the things that happened. I mean, it happened last year where Chihos was gone for a while and Casper was gone. Like it is. Casper, I know, gets a lot of flack for his play, but one of the things he was doing for the fire, especially early last year when he was a starter at striker, the guy would go down the pitch like a gazelle to get back on D. And he was doing that frequently enough. And like he's tall, he's kind of lanky, and it risks injury, right? And he got injured. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think that that's part of what's going on is when you have guys that are doing too much where there there's not the system that's working then things happen definitely in terms of like what you just mentioned with casper you know going back and forth we see a lot of that the a lot of the players especially those moving forward being forced to move back in terms of to help defensively and one thing i've noticed with the fire in terms of their defensive play is how much they love to clump together especially in that line or in one side where the ball is where that can allow players on the opposition to easily switch or you know testify whether they're gonna you know use an offside trap or something like that and it forces not only you know a lot of those players to come back but it forces when we do receive possession back a lot of those players to once again move forward and a lot of times those players as much as they're trying, they can't get their forward enough. So by the time we do regain possession, it's 
a lot of the defending players from the other team are already back in defense and not much is going to come from that, which is, it's something that I find, especially in these games and in previous games where the Fire do get outperformed, how incredibly difficult it is for us to move the ball in that final third, like how well the defense of the opposition players, especially with Nashville, they were very well placed in terms of defense, while in terms of our in terms of our defense, it was almost easy for a lot of these uh, Nashville players to just move forward, create chances, and to get corner after corner after corner, um, even with these deflected shots. And in that first half, the Fire weren't able to produce anything from attack. Zero shots in total, with Nashville having 14. Granted, only three of them were on target, but they were making chances. Fire had zero corners. Nashville had six. It was high press from Nashville. It was incredibly difficult for the Fire to counter. And we we were getting outworked. I mean, at every part of that game at that stage. And I, I think that that's a big part of it. And I mean, when that is happening, especially with, with Rafa, like we, we've seen him, he is committed to the team. He's committed to the team's fortunes. He does not, like, he's the kind of guy that just like puts the the stick in like the highest gear and then like pulls the fucking shifter out and that's it you know um he doesn't really have a lower gear than that when he's playing and that makes him a little bit i mean he's only had a couple of injuries but i mean that that makes it more likely he's a guy that's going to have to go out because he will give everything he's got and leave it on the pitch i agree part of the problem is we have players doing so much but I can't, I'm kind of wondering if that's part of what's going on with like Mueller and maybe even to a degree how Selassie and I mean we're expecting these guys to do all this stuff and they're probably thinking that they have to. So yeah, after a certain point, it's going to start showing. And guess what? Oh, I can see that that a lot of these players. I've I've mentioned in the last episode and previous episode that this team, in comparison to the team that Raphael Wiki had, this is a team that's more committed, a team that actually, I want to say, cares a bit more. The ones that are actually like really putting in the effort, even if the quality isn't entirely there, there is effort, and it might be that they are overexerting themselves, that they're putting in so much effort that they're ending up getting frustrated, and that frustration leads to error creation. And just sloppy performances like Mueller, you know, he was someone that against the Red Bulls was getting really frustrated. And, you know, he just wasn't having that performance. It's not just it's not just injuries. It's also that's one of the things that leads to yellow cards is when people have are trying, they they care, they're committed. I mean, like Kai had a very silly yellow um a, a couple of weeks ago where he he basically I think it was against Philadelphia, that that first Philadelphia match when he, he like basically pulled a guy at the pitch saying like, you're not hurt. Come on, get up. And I mean, he, he's 38 years old. He's been around the league for a very long time. He knows better than that, mm-hmm. but he didn't do better than that because he, that's the frustration that he had with how he knew he had been performing, how he knew his teammates had been performing and the result that they had had not matching up with that. Yeah. And that frustration leading to mistakes, unfortunately led right at the, right at the death of the first half led to a mistake from Federico Navarro, someone that, usually is consistently doing fairly well to a leading to a messy foul uh, during one of the national corners that led to 
a conceded penalty. And of course, the MVP of Nashville, Ani Mukhtar, uh, scores from the spot. Originally, when I saw that corner going in and I saw players laying on the ground, I thought Nashville committed a fall. Next thing I know, I hear ref points to this spot. And I was like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, conceding two penalties in one game is just... It's is not something that you really should have a professional team do in situations that, you know, unless something extreme happens. But mm-hmm. I don't think, well, for starters, I mean, it, you know, MLS refing is never necessarily the best in the world. Um, and the best refing in the world is never necessarily um, 100%. But you don't, and, the, and I don't think that this ref is doing a great job controlling the game. And this has happened with the fire a couple times before. That first Philly game was like the most notable one where they did not have control of the game. And that's a big problem because it actually does put people's health at risk. And that's my biggest problem with it. Mm-hmm. This ref also did not really have control of the game. So that being said, I don't think either of the penalties is completely ridiculous. Like, I, I don't think that they were necessarily... A hundred percent. Oh, that's so obvious. How could it be anything else? But I don't think that re-watching that game again today, it's like, well, you know, like, eh, like it, it wouldn't be a penalty a hundred percent of the time, but it would be most of the time probably. And so, yeah, you have to just say, all right. And like you mentioned, this was the first game the fire got out performed. What if I know that I know what if this is a huge, what if scenario, what if the fire were to have a similar result to Philadelphia away, and that being only a 1-0 loss. What if only that one goal, that one goal from open play went in? Would the narrative be a bit different in terms of, okay, the fire were outplayed, but we only lost like one in the very end. And once again, it was from a bit of a, a sloppy mistake and in the back. Would the narrative be a bit different? So the one thing I will say is that in the Philly game, I think that the fire outplayed Philly, right? Like that was the story. We we outplayed the opposition, and yet the result was not was not there. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, the narrative would be different. But the narrative, in a way, it's it's one of those like uh, the beginning of Anna Karenina, where it's like all unhappy families are are different. All happy families are alike. I mean, it's put the other way in the book, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, like you know, the, the narrative would be like we like why can't we put away games that we should win? Um, so like I said, in a way, just being outplayed is kind of refreshing um, because this game did not seem winnable. And I, I think that part of that's on Ezra. I think a bigger part of it's on the squad, the way that it's been composed. But like we were also playing a somewhat rotated squad. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is. Um, Haney Mukhtar just loves us, obviously. Like he, he just wants to play. I mean, now that we're in the same conference, I'm sure that he is like going to circle the home date against the fire every year in his calendar and just write the word hat trick in uh, the beginning of the season. But, you know, what can you do? Someone kept editing the Wikipedia page for the fire. They kept editing it to say Hani Mukhtar's hat trick machine. They had to protect the page because of it. God. You know, it's very difficult. Um, second half, we saw some more substitutions. We saw Guti and Gaston coming in for Kutsias and Herbers. We also did see Kai Kamara coming in for Katsuber Pshibilka. 
lot of pinball action from the Nashville corners continued. Um, there was like one moment where I was like, how did that not go in? You know, from one of the Nashville corners. The Chris Brady, by the way. Yeah. So the answer is Chris Brady because the, the fire have been conceding goals. And so Chris Brady does not get the credit, but he has made a ton of saves. He has made a ton of saves in key moments mm-hmm. and he has kept the fire in games. And I don't think that he's getting really the credit he deserves for that. Yeah. And I know last night we had a little bit of a Twitter space with Matt, Orion, a bunch of other people. Alex was also on there. And the question of Brady versus Gaga came up. And, you know, a lot of people were saying like, oh, Gaga had a lot of clean sheets. And one thing that I mentioned was how the fact that the reason why Gaga had a lot of clean sheets was because of the fact that he had a different defense. And those were a lot of games where he would have one save or two saves. Well, Brady is making a lot of saves, a lot of like shortstop saves. There were a few moments where Brady did put himself on the line moving forward in order to protect you know, another goal from going in. So I know, I know, Tim, you, you had a lot to say on how Tim, uh, how Tim, because you're the goalkeeper, how Chris, <laughs> how Chris is very much a different you're a white guy. Today. It's fine. <laughs> we're, <laughs> all, we're all, we're all Tim's Chris's or Mike's or Steve's in the end. How Chris, um, how Chris is a different goalkeeper than Gaga was when he was at the fire. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's more athletic. I mean, I think that he does have a higher ceiling than Gaga, um, I, I know that based on, you know, things that I've heard that initially he was considered the better talent by the, the fire. And I've never gotten a good explanation about what exactly was, what it was that put Gaga in front. Um, but, you know, Chris is incredibly talented. I think that Brady's future with the fire is really bright. I think with the national team is really bright. You know, I, I think in terms of just like sheer, you know, shot stopping ability, it, he is one of the most talented goalies in MLS. And I think that he's been kind of showing that. I don't think that he's been getting as much credit because of the number of shots that he's had to stop. And Alex said this really well those early games when Gago was getting a lot of those clean sheets, I mean, the team was desperately committed to defense to the point that, like, it's like a game of foosball where you didn't even touch the like the two like poles or whatever those things are called, like closest to the goal that you're trying to score on. Like it didn't even occur to us. And that showed up in the results, the number of games that we did not score a single goal in. Um, and the team has been scoring goals and conceding goals and like sometimes goals in the wrong places. But some of those are not really, I mean, it's, it's soccer. It's not hockey. Like not every shot is savable. That is true. And um, I know a lot of people still give Chris a lot of, you know, a lot of BS. First of all, every time they Mutar when Mutar scored both goals, I had to turn off the audio because I cannot listen to Nashville fans and their college chants. I was like, uh, no, 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 no. It, it was it, it. I just felt bad for Chris because hearing the Nashville fans, I just. In the back of my mind, I was like, there's fire fans that are echoing the same thing. And so one of the things I do really respect about Chris is I, I really do think he's got a ton of mental toughness. And he's he's shown that this year. I mean, he's shown that just by virtue of the fact that he he was looking at a guy that was his age, that, you know, I mean, of course you think that you're better in some ways, even if you're like, okay, like this guy's my friend, he's good. Like in some ways you always in the back of your head are thinking like, I can do that. I can do it. What 
Gaga is doing. Um, and he watched Gaga do it for a year. And he still showed up. He did not seem bruised. He did not seem hurt. When he's made mistakes, afterwards in the locker room, I mean, you know, Alex has, you know, video of him when he was talking about it. He's like, that was a mistake. He owned it really quickly. And he said, you will not see that from me again. Like, that is a guy that is incredibly mature at his age. And the mental toughness, I think, is one of his best attributes. And again, something that's kind of like a little bit unheralded because for whatever reason, it's like there were thousands of words written about Gaga and his maturity, which which can be true. But I think that there's like this like unwit, unwritten rule about like, you can't have the same story twice. So national media can't say, oh yeah, and this other fire goalie also is really mentally tough and also is really mature yeah. because you've already written that story and like, you're not going to get it published twice. That's and even you, if it's true. Yeah, you mentioned separately. how the sequel it never is going to be, a, like unless it's hugely different and wildly successful, then it's never going to beat the original, even if it really is, you know, because it's already happened. Exactly. So... Yeah, and of course, like mentioned, um, Mukhtar did not score once, but twice from the spot. And how you mentioned that Nashville is a team that really pushes for the counter and, you know, to go for the goal. This time they got uh, Kendall Burks to make a mistake. We did see VAR being used for mistaken identity because I think Johnny Dean was shown the yellow at first and then when they said that there was going to be a VAR check, I was like, oh no, is he going to get sent off for the challenge? And then they were like, no, uh, ends up he was uh, the wrong person received the yellow card. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Anyways, oh, it's 2-0 for Nashville. And um, it, they just, like like Tim mentioned, they, Nashville exploited something that they do, they do well. They don't need much possession. They went for the counter. They were quick with it. And one of our center backs who is not as experienced, you know, still more fresh, made a made an error. And that ended you know up leaving. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, though, to his credit, he did have a good game overall. You know, like, that's one of the things, like, if you're a striker, you make mistakes all game, but you get one thing right, and uh, everyone loves you. Mm -hmm. But as a center back, the opposite is true. Like, you, you do a lot of things right, and you make one mistake, and everyone hates you. Yeah. So. I mean, the the job of defense in, in, in sports, especially in soccer, is very difficult because, like you said, you make one, one mistake that leads to, you know, that leads to conceding, and it's uh, the world turns against you. I've seen so many memes about it as well. How you'll you'll have the center back that does like that does fairly well, and the coach doesn't recognize it, and then the striker does one tap in, and the coach is like, "Wow, it's pretty cool." And it's so yeah, no, and and Burks has had a a lot of good moments in the moments that he's featured both in MLS as well as the Cup. You know, in I think it was also in. The um, I can't remember if it was the New uh, the New York game or if it was the Philly game, one of the two. I can't remember which one, honestly. Um, I I actually I can't remember, but he was in he was in, he was playing and he's he made a few decent saves uh, and a few decent clearances as well. And I was like, okay, this you know he's he's, he's having a fairly decent game and of course the goals that we can yeah. see. So, I mean, yeah, he's. He, he is still young. 
um, and, and coming from the college route, which is a little bit different because you you are not playing, you know, 90 minutes every every week, every couple of weeks, even um, the way that you would be like with MLS Next Pro or something like that. Um, but he's he certainly has a lot of talent. And I, I mean, I think he's been making a lot of good decisions. He had a really good game I mean, against an amateur opponent. So you have to handicap that. But like he was in the right places and doing a lot of the right things. And uh, his mom subscribes to the newsletter and is a really nice person. So we, yeah. we, have, to give, we have to give him that. So Absolutely. Well, at the very least, his mom is awesome. Yeah. So And his dad, dad too, by the way. I met them both uh, first game of the season. Very nice people. Yeah. So, you know, like we said, final score is 3-0. We were completely outperformed. And the last thing that just resonates is one of the things that the commentator said. This was in terms of a late... Um, giveaway from Shakiri, where he said, you make a mistake late in the game, walk away and show no frustration. That's your DP, Chicago. And the cameras just zoomed in on Shakiri. This, I, I, we don't have to get into, um, in, into it too much because we still have a whole other topic to talk about after this being our upcoming uh, essentially doubleheader against St. Louis. But, you know, it's it's once again... Whenever, whenever on national TV the fires talked about, it's always about Shakiri and how he's going into the category of MLS busts. I will say whatever you can say about the national broadcast yesterday. Well, yesterday when we're recording this, but against Nat, like the national the broadcast during Nashville, they had lower opinions, significantly lower opinions about everything related to Chicago than Sufjan Stevens does. And they came into the match with that, and they left the match with that. And yeah. that's pretty much what I'll say. I know. And whenever they show highlights, they always show the other teams like, wow, look at all these goals and cool things. And then for the fire, they're like, look, here's all the goals they've conceded. And so it's, you know, from the get-go, they are already like, this is what we think of the fire. So, and with that, uh, I know last last week, we said the hot seat is getting hotter the hot seat has reached critical temperatures, and there's there's been some some chirps on the Bluebird app that you know changes might be coming quickly, and that you know while nothing is confirmed, the hot seat is at like magma temperatures right now. This this is volcano is spewed and the lava is out temperatures right now. So, Last night. Last night, Tyrus was tweeting out a bunch of sleeper agent codes. I, I and, saw those, and I was like, "What? <laughs> what, what is? Is the, what Enigma codes are these?" I think you wanted blueberry pancakes. I agree. I agree. Do you want blueberry pancakes too, Tim? You know, actually, I think my wife ordered some of those this morning, and they were delivered. <laughs> um, they they look good. I did not have any, um, yeah. but. To, just to make it clear what we're talking about, because um, it, it may not be unless you're as inside, uh, I guess, soccer ball as as we are. Um, the question is whether or not Ezra Hendrickson will be in his job uh, in the you know next week, next couple of weeks, foreseeable future, maybe tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will be gone before you're hearing this. And honestly, you know there's a lot of things that I think that you can kind of put on the manager with a lot of this. I, I don't think that Ezra Hendrickson is going to be getting anyone's vote for coach of the year. 
but there's a lot of things that are not things you can really put on the manager. And you have to think about who the person actually firing him would be, and that would be Georg Heitz. And I, I Georg Heitz saying you're not doing a good enough job to Ezra is is a little bit like the the pot calling the you know fine china teapot that has not been cleaned in a while black. Um doesn't seem doesn't seem entirely that's an incredible analogy first of all i want to say <laughs> that and i'm pretty sure a lot of people in the fire um faithful have that very similar opinion whether it's about ezra or not you know whether he's a good manager whether he's a man manager whether he's a bad manager that's that opinion but the opinion in terms of our sporting director you know why is he not also someone that's being looked at because, you know, he's someone that is, you know, the main catalyst of bringing in players that have just not performed to their standards, have been incredibly subpar, especially with our designated players and especially with Jordan Shakiri. I mean, he's his picture is in the video. The like, if you remember the the reveal video that when it, it was like Shakiri's in Switzerland and his phone starts ringing and it's it's George Heights and he, his picture is on there and everything. So it's like it's not only you know who is in charge of these players, who's in charge of bringing in those players that a lot of people are like okay, why aren't you and your job also getting looked at with what's been going on? He's a guy that looked at $32 million, which is what the team committed between the transfer fee and Shakiri's salary on one hand, and said, and looked at Shakiri and thought, this is worth it. And then looked at the money for John Duran and thought that was worth it too, but then didn't replace him. You know, so it, it does it does really beg the question of like, what's the game plan here? And it, it just seems like there hasn't been one for long enough. And he's had enough time. I mean, Nashville SC's first game was played the same week that the first game that the fire were under, like the first, like the first game that was when Georg Heights was technical director of the fire played the same week. And Nashville has made the playoffs every year. They look like they're on track to be one of the better teams in the East this year. We know what happened when they played us, and we haven't made the playoffs. So, I mean, to me, I think that that says a lot about what his plan has been and how it's been executed. I don't think that there's been nothing that he's done right, but, you know, has it been that much? At the end of the day, if Ezra's leaving, Heights has got to go. That doesn't matter what else. If Ezra's leaving, you don't want Heights making that call on who the new manager is, unless it's Jesse Marsh. Yeah, and 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 using uh, you know uh, a analogy that Maurizio Pochettino has used about Spurs, you know, it's like you have a nice house, but you need you know you need furniture, and you know the manager is the person that rearranges the furniture, but who's the person buying the furniture? So. You know, who's the person that not not only is, you know, I wouldn't say buying it because, you know, someone else has the pocket, but who's choosing, you know, the furniture to being placed in the house, you know? So, yeah. And, Final and I think Joe Mansuito, like, we have to be, you know, he, he spent a lot of money buying the team. I think that it's clear that he's got a civic mission. He's got a long-term vision. You don't spend $60 million to not play in a place if you 
are not trying to make the team be something that is significant in the city that it plays in. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, you would hope that in terms of like hiring or firing something as significant as a head coach, he would have to say yes or no. I mean, even if it was just a check-in and to a certain extent, it's like, wait, we've been down this road before, right? Like you, you picked Wiki and now you're saying he's not the guy. And now you pick this guy and now you're saying he's not the guy. I mean, it, it, after a while, it's like fool me once. Shame you know, on me. Shame right. Fool me twice. Shame exactly. Me. And fool me twice. It's, and I will give Mansuito a lot of credit for having been enough of a hands-off owner because you get guys like, um, blanking on the name, but FC Cincinnati's owner who insisted that what the team needed to do was like trade players away to get draft picks. Like it was the NFL, the first season mm-hmm. to the extent that like, that's one of the reasons the team was a joke their first year of existence, because they're like, Oh, we're going to get all these draft picks, not realizing what the draft was in MLS versus what the leagues that they knew. And he's been hands off enough. We've got to give him credit for that. And to jump on that, it's been a similar way when Raphael wiki and George Heights came from Switzerland where their approach is we're going to go a very European route. We're going to get a lot of players, you know, in terms of transfers from Europe, you know, a few from South America. And that also hasn't worked out in MLS. And while George Heights has sort of moved away from that direction, you know, in terms of getting more, you know, American players, whether it's from the college route or whatever, it's still not there. And with the players that he does acquire, you know, from abroad, for the most part, like I said last week, have been either eh or mm. So it's yeah. about how often you have to hit, and it's about respecting the salary cap. It's a salary cap league, mm-hmm. and you have to. There's certain roster spots, and they have to count. You know, FC Basel can take what Gaston Jimenez was making at like 2.3 million a year, and they can't often take a hit of saying this guy's not working out of that money, but they can do it once in a while. A DP spot, you can't do the same thing. And that's part of why he's offered Gaston Jimenez three contracts and four years in charge, because he's been trying to make the numbers work with the budget. I'm assuming with somebody trying to talk to him about how things work, but it, it hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's kind of occurred to me is his resume as a, as a director in charge of scouting, in charge of clubs, it happened immediately before a lot of the you know, analytics and data that we now have access to became available in Europe and then after that in MLS. So he's sort of like one of the last people that was really successful at picking players before statistics really could help you do that. And I do kind of wonder if that's one of the factors. Moving away from the Music City, uh, we got, like I said, a doubleheader essentially two times in one week, we will be facing the new expansion team, St. Louis City, uh, once on Tuesday at SeatGeek in the U.S. Open Cup, the other time at Soldier Field for Major League Soccer. And their last game uh, against Dallas, I actually remember seeing the notification and, and that saying it was the game was suspended, and I was like, okay, I wonder why. Ends up it was because of bad weather, and the match will be replayed at a later date. St. Louis... The current, you know, expansion hot team right now. Uh, they're currently second in the Western Conference, six three and one with nineteen points, including being three one and one away from home 
However, in their last five, they are one, three, and one. So in terms of late later form, once they were beaten for the first time, because I remember in those first, first few games, they were like, are they going to go all the way? And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, no, they're not. And um, as we have written down here, they're uh, arguably their MVP, uh, Joao Klaus, hopefully I'm saying that right, who has five goals and four assists, was out against Dallas, as well as one of their other players, Rasmus Alm, two goals, three assists, was questionable and wasn't on the bench. Tim, what the, the Chicago-St. Louis rivalry is heating up. We, we all over all over social media, we've been we've been seeing it going. I, I've even had my own exchange of back and forth with some St. Louis people. What are your thoughts for St. Louis coming here not once but twice? I'm excited. I mean, I'm just really excited about this being a rivalry. I'm excited about the Open Cup. I will always be excited about the Open Cup. It doesn't matter who we're playing. Um, it is really a magical tournament, and not just because of the immediate matchups, but because of the history that happens. Um, nearly 100 years ago, there was a chance that a team from Chicago, if the draw had gone a different way, and it was like literally picking lots, a team from Chicago called the something Canadians could have played a team called, I'm not kidding you, Pants Store FC from St. Louis. I mean, you cannot make these things up. It, the cup is magical. It is beautiful. It, and it, but it shows that soccer was not something that just was invented when Dave, you know, David Beckham showed up and showed people bending a ball and had good hair. Like it, the the game has been around in this country for a century. A lot of these teams were immigrant communities that have been people that were like working, you know, basically building communities from nothing. And it says a lot about this country that this tournament has been going on for 120 years. So always up for the cup, always up for the cup. Um, but also the St. Louis rivalry. I mean, it it's Chicago's most natural rivalry ge geographically and just in terms of the history of it with different sports. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that it is starting with a U.S. Open Cup match and not an MLS match between two teams in different conferences that then everyone just forgets about afterwards except for like some random stat spot of like did you know the first time like no this is it it's an elimination tournament they're playing in a in a match where it's like win or go home and i could not be happier about it yeah no it's gonna be it's gonna be definitely one it's gonna be one to remember and i'm excited to go there we're not gonna get into the details about SeatGeek because we've done that one too many times on this podcast so that is to be foregone at this point, <laughs> DJ, yep. are you excited for for the St. Louis Chicago rivalry? I look forward to it. I look forward to getting revenge for 1904. Defo, and like I said previously, <laughs> I've already had my my fair share of of St. Louis banter. I remember, I think it was last Friday. I put on my Twitter. I was like, you know, I took. I took the time because of the weather to take a walk around downtown Chicago. And I'm so blessed to be living in such a vibrant and alive city and not St. Louis. <laughs> and I remember one person, um, like in another thread, like screenshot of that. And he's like, this is you. And I was like, uh, yeah, you can see by the name and my picture that that is indeed me. I'm so proud that you know how to read. And then I posted an Animaniacs, uh, 
clip where where it was Yako and he points to the screen is like, "Is this you?" <laughs> so I, I hope you guys know <laughs> what I'm talking about. But it was so yeah. funny. Um, so I'm, and I know some people were like, "Oh, this is gonna be a for- forced rivalry." Absolutely not. This is, you know, even as an eighth grader when I went to St. Louis and I had pretty much no interest in sports or anything. I was basically abandoned. I disliked St. Louis. I was like, this city is gray. It's depressing. And and I, I said in the last episode how we were being absolute just menaces with my friends singing Go Cubs Go near the Cardinal Stadium. And when we saw banners for the Blues and their playoff run, we started seeing Chelsea Dagger. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. So uh, predictions for both the Cup and for MLS. We'll start with Tim. What do you think? You know, I, I'm hoping that the Fire roll out the the best roster they possibly can. I'm going to have a piece coming out about this, but um, I think they should. I think that they deserve to. I think that that's what the Cup deserves. I think that's what the people that are going to be there deserve. And you know what? In the end, St. Louis City is a team that does a high press, and that's that's great that no one could figure out that's what it was for a very long time. Adrian Heath, to his credit, in Minnesota figured that out. They played against a high press the way that you do, and they beat them one nothing. I think that the Fire can beat them 2-1 in the Open Cup. Decent, decent. Uh, DJ, you got some predictions for us? I'm actually going to refrain from making any predictions. <laughs> Just because of Ezra, what the whole Tyrants thing. I have no idea what the next week is going to look like. I don't know if Frank Lawboss will be managing the Open Cup game or Ezra, or if Ezra is still with the team, which, I'm, I mean, we know how all that goes. I'm saying it's a 2-1 win, hopefully. But at the same time, I'm not even going to try and guess about Saturday. <laughs> I'm hoping. At the very least, I hope the Fire beat St. Louis and SeatGeek. Mm-hmm. No matter what, just beat their asses. I think I'm on that ship as well. With MLS, you know, whatever happens on that Saturday, which is Chicago Sports Day themed, and I just found out that Jim Cornelius, the guy that sings the national anthem for the Blackhawks, is going to be singing it, so I'm super excited for that. I think Tuesday with the Cup is going to be definitely the more... The like you said, it's going to be the one in the spotlight. This is the one where we're going to be like, this is the win because it's do or die, win or go home. With with MLS, you know, I don't want to say that we're putting off this season already, but you know, with the current form that we are in MLS, whatever happens will happen, and we'll be like, okay, it is what it is. We're going to move on. This is the cup against St. Louis. This is the beginning of the rivalry. So I'm also it's going to be memorable, right? Like it's going to be a memorable yeah. game. It'll always be the first game that they played against each this other. This will be the game that I'll tell my grandchildren about. But it's the first time in eight years that the Fire have played the same team twice in a week. And the last time was also a US Open Cup game and then an MLS game afterwards. Those were both away games in Philly. And to Frank Gallup's credit, he rolled out the A team for the US Open Cup game. Mm-hmm. And and that's what Ezra has to do here because you do that you set the tone, like you don't want to start out being losers. Oh man, that's simple. And and there's going to be a winner and a loser in that game. There's there's no chance of a draw. Amen. I say to that. All right, 
DJ's favorite part of the, the podcast, the question of the day. <laughs> and I remember, uh, uh, I think I think Matt already saw and gave his reaction with the good old WTF. So, uh, take it away. Question of the day. Which cryptid or beast of religious or mythological lore would help would best help the fire in these trying times? As examples, we're going with like Leviathan from the Bible or the Nephilim from the Bible slash uh, Torah or the Yeti or Mokeli and Bembe or stuff like that. This is and <laughs> you create the best. <laughs> I love how you create the most interesting questions and then somehow tie them with the fire. <laughs> I find that incredible. Um, you want to you want to start us off with that? Oh no, I want to see Tim. It looked like he just had a funny reaction. Well, I mean, I, I think there's kind of a, a, I think there's an obvious answer in a way. Um, it, it's the Kamara, right? For starters, it sounds like it's got Kai Kamara in the name, which doesn't quite. But I mean, you you know, slur your syllables enough, and it almost does. But it's it's a mythical beast from. Uh, from Greek mythology, there are multiple ways that um, that it's been portrayed. It almost always has the head of a lioness, um, and sometimes there's a part of a goat, uh, which is where it gets its name because it, it comes from the Greek word for goat, uh, which is sort of funny because uh, it's entirely possible that Miguel Navarro has called himself a crazy goat at at least one point. <laughs> um, but it's a beast that breathes fire. It also has the head of a snake. So there's sometimes a third snake, a third head, and the tail of a snake that has venomous fire in it. But it, it's a mythical beast that breathes fire. And it was strong. It was basically indefensible. The only way it was defeated was when, um, I think it was Belotheron, uh tried shooting arrows at it and it did, didn't do anything because the chimera could just like melt the arrows away so he had to take a spear with like a very heavy lead tip and throw it into the mouth and then the fire melted the lead and in the city in america with the most remaining lead pipes that being a way that that piece mm -hmm. is killed is somehow a little bit poetic but until then until there's a team that brings a bunch of lead on the pitch i feel like with a Kamara, we're, we're pretty good. All right. I like this. I like this. Very, <laughs> very detailed and very fire-orientated, and I love that. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll go, and I'm not going to lie. I looked at, like, a huge list of cryptids on Wiki, and I was like, I don't... I, I, I kind of... Why are y'all thumbs-upping me? <laughs> that just was... Nerd. Our fellow nerd. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just the fact that you guys way, were both this, thumbs up because now that that is out of the bag, we're we're on videos recording it so we can see what each other are saying. So we give hand signals sometimes. And um, in in the background of Alan's of Alan's uh room, there is a a shirt that really looks like it belongs in Weird Al, and this is why we're saying nerd in part. Um, and we oh, love it. Shirt. We 100 percent love it. That shirt. Yes, that shirt. Yeah, you can't that, see that it. That is a Weird Al shirt. Hawaiian shirt. That is. Yeah, it's a very bright little Hawaiian shirt. It is. It's with Alan's mustache and long hair. I mean, it's just you have to make some connections in your head, and there's got to be a next generation of Weird Al. You and know what? 
And and you know, Alan can be short for Al, and I am weird, so uh, it all makes right, sense. Right, I know it's like a match made in heaven. It all makes sense. All right. So going back to cryptids, what's <laughs> something that definitely you wouldn't hear on a soccer podcast? I'm gonna go with my favorite, and that's Mothman. I'm gonna go with nice. Mothman because I feel like we'll just he's 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 hiding somewhere in the back rooms of Soldier Field or Seat Geek. And he's just waiting to snatch up some poor away fan or away or away um player. So yeah, no, I, I just <laughs> off my hand. I am not sure which one I would pick because I'm stuck between like three choices. I don't know if you can pick Skinwalker because technically a Skinwalker is not a beast. It is a human. Mm-hmm. And there's the Wendigo, but uh, considering the Wendigo is, you know, the Wendigo, I don't know if you want to share a locker room with that. So my final answer will probably just be the Thunderbird. Because Thunderbird. let's be real, the Thunderbird is supposed to be massive. And it's supposed to flap its wings like thunder. Not to mention that it's the major Illinois cryptid, so duh. But like, could you just imagine? And up front, up top, we have the Thunderbird. Or in goal, we have the Thunderbird. Uh, yeah, it doesn't also, flap if its wings. It's not going your well in a match. You just start thunder, <laughs> and that's it. Match is over, just like what happened to <laughs> St. Louis. It's like, well, that's it. Well, we're done. Sorry, we'll we'll play this game a couple weeks from now or a couple weeks from now. That's we're good. Like the only problem will be if the other team has a whale on their team. That's the only problem. I don't know. <laughs> the groundskeepers have got to be hosing that thing down because their skin has to stay wet for them to survive. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of work having a whale on your team. Yeah, no. It's like it's either the Thunderbird or I would probably say um Probably one of the goblins from Iceland. There's the 12 Yule lands from Iceland, which kind of count as beasts. Like there's door sniffer and pot liquor and spoon liquor. Probably one of them, just because they would annoy the crap out of the other team and make them confused as hell as to why they're eating their sausages. That's great. <laughs> what, it, it sounds like an alternate version of the Seven Dwarves, which is amazing. This is. From my understanding, before they got Christianized, uh, yeah, they were like the Seven Dwarves, but uh, on drugs. Incredible. Sounds like Iceland. Yep. Incredible. Well, well, gentlemen, this has been another great episode. Uh, a lot of detail, a lot of in-depth analysis, and another classic question of the day uh, from DJ. So uh, round of applause at home or at work, wherever you're listening to, even if you're on your car, you can let go of the steering wheel, even for a second, just to give DJ a round of applause, as well as Tim for his really great in-depth analysis, and me for having a good mustache and Weird Al t-shirt, I guess. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, once again, thank you so much for listening to episode 11 of the Men in Red 97 podcast. Um, you can read on the meninred97.com website, a bunch of Tim's articles. They're really great, really in-depth. Really great read to, to read. Read to read. If you really want to go in-depth, you read <laughs> Tim's articles. <laughs> All right, we're going to play the Reading Rainbow uh, theme song on the way out. And uh... Yeah, Austin, if you're listening <laughs> to this, at this point, put in the Reading 
theme song, <laughs> but just enough that we won't get DMCA. <laughs> so, anyway. I mean, it's NPR or like, what is it? Uh, the, the TV versus PBS. Are, yeah. are we really going to get... Are there lawyers that good? I don't know. Maybe. I have no clue. But anyways, uh, hopefully Matt will get back to us soon after being held up by seven Wendigos and two Bigfoots trying to talk to him and Aaron Rye about their car's extended warranty. So this has been Alan, Tim, and DJ with the Men in Red 97 podcast. And as always, come on, you Men in Red. Let's go fire.